Anthony Desaw grew up in Toronto's Portuguese community. His short fiction has been published in lots of North American literary magazines. He attended the Humber School for Writers and now heads the English department and directs a creative writing program at a high school for the arts. Uh, Barnacle Love uh, was his first book. There's a couple of novels after that, including Children of the Moon. It's in stores right now. We're going to talk all about that in just a little while. But you're a teacher. Yes. You're still teaching. And I read an interview with you where uh, it was asked of you at age 12, if someone had said, what would you like to do with the rest of your life? You said teacher. That's pretty early. Normally, the answer would be astronaut or, you know, ride the fire truck or something like that. Right. What was it about teacher that, that uh, grabbed you? Well, it was, um, I think that in the basement of our unfinished, we had an unfinished basement in our Portuguese home, uh, <laughs> one of the few at the beginning. And my father set up like a blackboard and chalk and, uh, and it was, I grew up in, um, in on Palmerston Avenue yeah. and all my uncles and aunts lived next door across the road and I had this gaggle of cousins and they'd come over and we would play. We would play in the unfinished basement and uh, one of the things that we did was we played school. I know that sounds crazy, um, but it was a little bit on the on the fringe, if yeah. you know, the kinds of things that we wanted to learn that right. our schools didn't teach us. And uh, I always kind of felt good about being up there. So mm. I knew that I wanted to teach. I knew I wanted to be part of uh, learning in that way. And uh, was there anyone in the family a teacher? Like you had a blackboard, no. didn't parents? No? No. No in teachers? In fact, uh, you know, uh, when I grew up uh, in that Portuguese enclave of the city, which was a, still a relatively new mm -hmm. community, uh, I grew up in a very strange household. So, for example, uh, my father wouldn't let us speak Portuguese. He insisted that we speak English. Okay. Was he first generation? Uh, he immigrated. Yeah and, and, yeah, and and it was probably at a time when people were making fun of his accent or it, harder to get a job if you spoke only Portuguese, that kind of thing, right? Right. So when my father first came to this country, he was one of the very first to come to this country, he um, he got a job at CP Rail and he traveled the country back and forth working the lines stationed out of Kenora. And what he realized very quickly being in this country is that you better learn English fast uh, because you can't buy groceries and you can't go to the bank unless you can communicate in that way. Subsequent generations came in that great wave of the late 60s and 70s and already we had people working in those places to help out. So my grandmother, for example, would wait in line at the bank so that she would ensure that she got the Portuguese bank teller. Right, right. Um, but in when my father came, he really believed, and this is well before the um, the Molson's commercial that said, I am Canadian. Yeah, yeah. You know, my father would say things like, I is Canada. Mm -hmm. And I know I would I would br uh, bristle, like just embarrassed about it as any young child about my father's accent and, and the way he, he um, spoke English. Now I look about, look at it and I think how incredible that was. I love that. I is Canada. I there's is something Canada. there's something about that. They sort of gave me little goosebumps yeah. there that it, it it is what Canada is supposed to be, 
we're supposed to be this this place where people come and can have a life and and you know from whatever country they've come from and and be a part of the fabric of it. I That's is exactly Canada. right. I is Canada. And because my father bought that house in on Palmerston Avenue in 1962, <laughs> are you ready? A $14,000. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Big old Victorian row house. And what was wonderful about that house was it was way too big for what my father needed, but he already knew that he would be sponsoring family members for years to come. And so all of that family would be living with us for six months or eight months until they got their footing. Mm -hmm. One of the things that he impressed upon them, and this is why he didn't want us to speak Portuguese in the house, was that it would force these family members to be exposed to English in a way that they weren't. And I'm kind of grateful for it. Maybe that's what the... the chalkboard in the basement was really Maybe for. that's yeah. what it was for. Yeah. <laughs> now, what drew you to literature? So you're, you're interested in teaching. You like the idea of learning, but was there a fantasy element or something about literature? You could read books and be transported to a different place? No, not at all. Yeah. And, um, uh, well, that's not in terms of writing them, yeah. no. Um, but I will say this, that I grew up uh, in a difficult situation. Uh, my father I think about at the age of eight or nine, um, started to drink heavily, and um, and it wasn't uh, wasn't a good kind of drinking. Yeah, um, yeah. He could get mean sometimes, and I found solace in books. I remember going to Sanderson Library on the corner of Bathurst mm-hmm. and Dundas, and um, it was my escape because books allowed me to. A, recognize the kind of similar situation that I was in and offer me hope. And also, B, give me an alternate world where I could escape to. And uh, so books were always important to me. I was an incredible reader, loved it, um, and became an English teacher and was passionate about it. Did I ever want to become a writer? No, it never crossed my mind. But I had the incredible opportunity in 2004 to have a sabbatical. Yeah, and now I wanted to ask you about this because this is a life-changing thing, right? So I'm I'm speaking with Anthony Dessa. The new book is called Children of the Moon. and we're going to get to that in a second. Yeah. Um, I, I still want to talk about sort of growing up a little bit. You still live in and around that neighborhood, do you not? Well, I, I close. live close. Yeah. I mean, I'm there all the time because my family still lives there. My uncles, my aunts, right. they still are in the and neighborhood. So there's echoes of the past everywhere of that course. you go. And that led to the writing of your first collection of stories right. and 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 the first short stories that you were uh, that you, that you published so you you take a sabbatical you take uh, some writing classes yes. and I'm sometimes of two minds of writing classes right. you know uh, because I've taken them and three quarters of the people that are in the class with you will never write another word once they no. leave the the school they think well I'd love to write a book and they sign up for a class and then realize Oh my God! It's really hard to write a book, and they, you know, they 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 drift away. But for that small percentage, like yourself, uh, who actually embrace it, it, it can be uh, a way of opening your mind to thinking differently. And is that sort of how you would you would say? Because I love the idea that you started writing these short stories about something that you knew so intimately, growing up in this Portuguese community, uh, and you know, sold them bit by bit 
they became a book. And it's, it's just, it's a lovely story about paying homage to the past, you know, to your uh, personal mm-hmm. history, uh, and then moving forward at the same time. Yeah, I mean, that's how it all started. I thought that I could write a book. I mean, the very first short story I wrote was about a G.I. Joe doll that I had as a child <laughs> that my father didn't want me to have because in his mind, it was a doll. A doll. And a boy of his was not going to play with a doll. Um, And, you know, uh, a great classic story. Mom comes in, saves the day, and it became our secret little ceremony. Um, And and the traction I got from that story, from that very first short story, was remarkable. And I think one of the things that was pointed out to me, because you don't know this. I mean, you don't intentionally go in and write a story and and say, oh, people are going to read this. But... Uh, in a world, in a, in a country where we pride ourselves on multiculturalism and all these different various voices, there had yet to be someone who was writing about the Portuguese experience in this country, which is very similar, but also has its own, you know, intricacies. Yep. Nuance. Yeah. Yes. And, and so you... Say, and I'm so going to be that person. I thought I brought that first story. It was great. Let me write a second one. And, th- and before I knew it, I had an agent looking for me and trying to figure out if I had read an, written a novel. And I said, yes, I have, which of course I hadn't. And uh, I remember- must have all been pretty mind-blowing. It was mind-blowing. I was quite happy during that sabbatical to have published three short stories yeah. in literary journals. And then to have at the end of that summer an agent- call me and ask if I had a novel. And of course, I lie and say I do. (laughs) Uh, And I remember I I drove up uh, the 400 going up to the cottage and I called my wife and she said, where are you going? I said, leave me for two weeks. Just give me two weeks. And after two weeks, I... uh, I didn't eat, but, you know, like Moses, I came down that, you know, I had 240 pages typed double space. In two weeks? In two weeks. Wow. And I thought, oh, I'm going to submit it to this agent. It's it's going to be pretty crappy. Uh, But um, she loved it. Wow. I love stories like this. Had those first short stories not been published, do you think you would have kept up and, and writing them for your own amusement and entertainment value? I, I wonder if I would. Uh, I still think that there's some value in chronicling these stories mm-hmm. and these family situations and having a record of them. Um, but I, it certainly took it to another level when I had a publisher. Well, I had m- many publishers yeah. trying to uh, get me signed to do a two-book deal with them, and that was really exciting. I, I really was green. I had no idea. I was quite content reading novels and teaching these incredible writers mm-hmm. to my students, uh, it took on a very different life when I actually became a writer myself. We're talking about you first starting to write. Uh, you still continue to teach and you teach literature to to uh, children, to kids. How old? How old are we talking? I'm high school. You're so, high school. Yeah, so I'm a teens, high school yeah. teacher. Yeah. So tell me... Uh, why it's so important. I think that, you know, in this era when the arts and everything else seems to be kind of under attack because people don't really seem to often understand why literature or drama or dancing or any of those things are so important to help shape young minds. From a teacher's point of view, tell me why it is. I think it gives you room. It gives you breadth. It it allows students to 
come up with their own ideas and conclusions about what they've just read. Mm -hmm. And I think that when things are so prescriptive, um, you know, I'm concerned about the kinds of students that we are putting through school, the kinds of programs that are out there for them that are going to make them better workers. Yeah. Um, I, I'd like to think that things like literature, um, which which in, in itself, fiction, is kind of perverse. I mean, you know, uh, uh, we're talking about characters that we've constructed and mm -hmm. putting them in situations that we've constructed as well. Um, it's really nice to have students make connections on their own. Um, and so that's why it's so important. And that's why we should never let go of that. I had Spike Lee in here a while ago and we were talking about one of his films and I went into great detail about one scene right. in one of these movies. And, and I said, what was going through your mind when you, you know, were shooting this, something like that. And he said, well, not that. Not what you just said, but he said, I love that. I had never thought of that in context of that scene. And that's why teaching literature and drama and how to think is so important. I think because it, it forces people or teaches people how to have opinions, how to uh, learn about the world and, and, and see uh, the width and breadth of the world that's out there. Right. And you learn empathy and you learn all sorts of things that are so important moving forward in your lives. That's right. Yeah. So, and Faulkner is a particular favorite of yours. Yeah, I was asked to do a piece for NPR, and uh, and I just I remember uh, being a young man and and reading all of the kind of literature that I was reading, and um, one of the books that really struck me was The Apprenticeship of Duddy Kravitz. Yeah. I mean, I remember reading that book and thinking for the first time, okay, here's a book that I can relate to. It's urban. Uh, it's a it's a young man who's kind of, you know, living under the, uh, where, where religion and looms large. Uh, and I thought, well, I can relate to this um, in many ways. But Faulkner, when I read Faulkner for the very first time, and I think it, well, the first book was As I Lay Dying, I remember thinking this crazy cast of characters uh, on this voyage, on this journey. And I remembered while I was reading that book for the first time, I remember looking at everyone in my family very differently <laughs> um, and, and really thinking about who we were. But that's how you learn empathy. That's, that's exactly what we were right. just talking about. That's exactly right. And it opened... I mean, these were not people like my family, mm. and yet there was something about them that pushed me to kind of question why they chose to do that. How come that relationship is so strong? And so these are the kinds of questions that fiction allows you to ask mm -hmm. and safely. You know, we're, we're invited in a, in a terrific book to kind of come in and ask questions about not only the characters that we're reading about and their circumstances, but how that, what that means to us. How do we connect to that world? The first couple of books in particular of yours really focused on the Portuguese community that you understood and knew and, and had grown up in and around. Uh, did, it, did it broaden your perspective on where you came from? I think it By made, putting it into words? Yeah, I think it was... Um, I think it was therapeutic. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I think that there's a lot of baggage that we we all carry uh, from our childhoods that uh, that we very often just don't deal with, mm -hmm. or we we are dealing with them in a very 
negative way. Um, I really had to take a look at that from as an adult and rethink it. Mm -hmm. Um, So when I was writing that very first book, Barnacle Love, I had to rethink about my father's own experience coming to this country and what that meant. And, you know, that book was... uh, was uh, the catalyst for that book really came from an uncle of mine, one of these uncles who had uh, uh, served in the colonial wars. And I think he was very angry at us one day, all of us, we had gathered, and I I was already an adult. And he went into that whole thing that many immigrant families do, which is the, you don't know how much we suffered for you. You know, we don't know how much we sacrificed. And I just don't know where it came from. But deep down inside, I blurted out, you have no idea what it's like to grow up in an immigrant home. You have no idea what it's like to close that door and open that gate into Canada's world and try to navigate that world knowing that you're coming back to this. And not that that was a that must bad, have stopped oh, things that dead stopped at things the park. dead. And you know, because we are a culture where we respect, yeah. uh, you know, our uncles, our aunts, our grandparents. But I think that it needed to be said mm-hmm. that it wasn't easy growing up. I remember um, my mom is no longer with me, but I remember one day she was uh, she wanted us she wanted to take us to McDonald's. We had never been to McDonald's. Yeah. And I was so excited. I think I was probably 8 and my sister was 12. And uh, we get to McDonald's. This is the one across from the Honest Eds on Bloor and Bathurst. Yeah. There used to be that one there. Yeah, yeah, I remember and, it well. Uh, on the corner of Markham and yep. And uh so we get there and I'm so excited. I don't even I've seen the commercials. Uh, You know, I've never been. um, And so I'm so excited about what I'm going to order. And my mother gives my sister some money to get us some drinks, which I thought was the first thing she was going to do was to get us drinks. And as my sister goes up to the counter to get us our drinks, my mother pulls out of her bag the sandwiches she had made. Wow. And I remember... My sister came back, saw what was going on, and she uh, was very upset and threw her drink down. And I remember trying to make it all okay. Yeah. Because I knew how much, how embarrassed my mother was. And I knew that she herself still, after being so many years in this country, didn't know how to navigate this world as well as she thought. Um, so those are the kinds of things that stay with you for a very long time. The story you just told about your mother, uh, it just, it kind of rocked me. I wasn't really, I'll be honest, I didn't really know how to follow I, that. I wasn't so we, expecting to yeah. share it, to be honest with you. <laughs> but it, it, but I think that's the kind of honesty that, that makes that book, uh, resonate with people. And interesting that you talk about that there were no Portuguese writers or people writing about the Portuguese immigrant experience in Canada, considering that we are a country of immigrants. Uh, it's kind of remarkable. Yes. Uh, the book, the next book after that is called Kicking the Sky. This was about a pivotal moment in Toronto's history. And this show is heard across the country. So we're not going to get all Toronto-y on you. But this was uh, a story about the murder of a, a young boy, young Portuguese boy in the 1970s, late 1970s in Toronto that seemed, if you look back, was kind of like the the hinge where Toronto became a little 
darker that day. You know, we didn't have murders really back then, the odd one here and there, but certainly not children, certainly not uh, in the way that this was. So tell me a little bit, because I've heard you talk about this a little bit, about Young Street. You know, they used to say Young Street is Fun Street. It's the longest street in the world. And there's that strip where this murder happened that was um, like... I always thought quite glamorous, neon and everything when I was a kid, uh, but there was a dark side to it. Right, and I thought it was glamorous as yeah. well. I mean, you, you know, uh, we we had the moniker Toronto the Good. Yeah. Um, so one of the things, my parents both worked at St. Michael's Hospital, right. which is just around the corner from Young Street, and often I would ride my bike because that was our mode of transportation yeah, through the laneways of the city. And I would make my way over to meet with them. And sometimes I'd like to get there really early yeah. so I can ride up and down Young Street with the neon signs and the enticing uh, the enticing advertisement. Well, and there were strip clubs. I and mean, there were strip like, clubs like there were strip clubs and body. And, yeah. and, and, and it kind of looked like to my eye anyway, as a young, you know, a young person, it kind of looked like what I imagine Las Vegas kind of looked yes, like. Yes, it was that kind of world that kids are drawn to yeah. because it's the kind of world we're not supposed to touch. That's right. That's so right. there was something really exciting yeah. about that. And so, well, yeah, I would ride it up, ride up and down that street. And remember, this was the time, um, and it was Christopher Hume who pointed this out to me, that, um, and I, I love this idea, that the Eaton Centre was being built yeah. uh, on that site. And it's fascinating that the Eaton Centre was built and the whole side facing Young Street arguably the most, the busiest street yep. in the city was completely blocked off. Right. No windows. Um, and, and that's indicative of that time. Yep. No one wanted to be on that road. <laughs> um, but, but we did as kids because yeah. it was that kind of world that we wanted to enter. Yeah. That's where all the music clubs it were. Magic. It was just, yeah, it was. A, and then a murder happens. And, and that really was, I mean, it was headline news for weeks. It was something that didn't really happen in Toronto. And, and you say, uh, there's a quote that I have from you somewhere here in my notes, uh, that is essentially something like, that's the time that Toronto kind of grew up a little bit. Well, we had to. And yeah. I have to say that when the book was written from the point of view of Antonio, the central character, who is 12 years old himself, and his two friends, and how they 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 rule their world yeah, yeah. here in Toronto. What was important to me was, and, and I think, I don't want this to be offensive, but there was so much going on in the world, and the kinds of things that were going on in Toronto paled in comparison to the excitement that was happening in the United States. So the summer of 1977 was the summer that the Son of Sam murders yeah, right. were happening. And so when this happened, to this young boy, the shoeshine boy, Emmanuel Jacques. I remember even being 12 years old and thinking to myself, wow, we've made it to the big time. Right. And I, I'm, I, I'm guilty about thinking that way now, but that honestly was how we felt that all of a sudden we've made it. We live in a real city. We now. are in a real yeah. North American city. Yeah. And with that comes crime and the kind of murder that happened yeah. that summer. And and why choose that story as, a, as the follow-up to Barnacle Love? Well, I mean, it was a story that changed me mm -hmm. uh, being that age. Um, I remember that our world all of a sudden became very constrained. Um, our parents worked very hard 
I remember waking up in the morning and uh, my mother and my father were already out. Right. I They would come home for about five o'clock. Uh, usually my sister and I would have dinner already ready for them because they would wash up and clean up and get ready for their second jobs, which usually meant coming back downtown and working uh, at cleaning some bank or some right. offices. We didn't really see our parents, and so we were latchkey kids. We yeah. roamed the city. We we took care of things for ourselves. And all of a sudden, this murder happens, and there were rules. We couldn't leave the house. We couldn't. And yet, the rules were imposed uh, on, on sheer fear mm -hmm. uh, that we would be punished, but they weren't around to punish us <laughs> because they still kept working yeah, these ridiculous yeah. hours. Right. Um uh, even the very small thing, uh, I remember when we returned back to elementary school uh, in September, for the first time I asked my teacher if I could go to the bathroom, and the teacher said, uh, yes, of course, uh, John, go with him. Wow. And then we'd enter the hall, and I'm thinking, why does John need to go to the bathroom with me? And we'd enter the hallway, and there was a teacher sitting in the hall, uh, like a hall monitor, yeah. which had never, never. Yeah. happened before. So it changed our whole understanding of the world that we lived in. It didn't stop us. Mm -hmm. We still got on our bikes. We still roamed and, and sought places we probably shouldn't have been. <laughs> and that's part of growing up, and that's part of our childhood. Yeah, I love Robert Robertson tells stories about when he was underage, going in and going to Lecoq Door and places like that, these these music clubs uh, down in along Young Street. And he'd go up like fire escapes to the second floor where Ronnie Hawkins was playing and just peer in the back door, you know, yeah. and just try and catch something of the magic that was happening that, that he wanted to be a part of so much. And there's something for me that's quite glamorous about that, but it's a, it was a much different time. And, and I found the quote where you, you say, uh, that it called on the city to redefine itself. And that's, it, is exactly what happened after that. Yes, I think so. Uh, I'm speaking with Anthony Dessau. The book is called Children of the Moon. It is available wherever you buy books. Uh, it feels a little different than your uh, last books. Uh, this one takes place in Mozambique under Portuguese rule. So right away, you've moved away from the Canadian settings of your other books uh, into something else. Let's break it down. We got a couple of minutes here in this segment. Sure. Why why uh, choose to go further afield with this one? Well, you know, there's the old mantra in, in that you write what you know, mm -hmm. uh, and I certainly did that for book one and book two, and um, for book three, I was interested in in writing what I wanted to understand. Right. Um, I grew up. Uh, in a family of secrets. There were things that we didn't talk about, things that we knew about each other but no one spoke of. And that fascinated me much more than what it is that I knew. Um, so it was an exploration not only of uh, looking at my uncles and their role in that uh, colonial war, mm -hmm. the, the various Revolutionary. colonial wars. Revolutionary, yeah, yes. civil wars, yeah. And how they came back from those places um, broken, lost, um, at, with a real sense of abandonment. And, and we're not talking, you know, ancient history no. here. We're talking the 60s and no, 70s. Yeah, that's exactly yeah. right. And one of the things that I had to reconcile was, uh, you know, my father, remember, I is Canada. Yeah, I, yeah. You know, I love that. Uh, it's a great, so we weren't, my mother said it was because he was cheap. Uh, <laughs> but my father refused to have us have cable. So we were only allowed CBC. 
Right. And um, according to him, it was the great trinity, right? So we had Hockey Night in Canada. <laughs> we had a CBC News, which we yep. watched every night together as a family. And we had, for entertainment, the Tommy Hunter yep. show on Friday nights. So, I mean, uh, and I remember sitting in front of that television in the early 70s watching the news. And everything was about the Vietnam War. And yet what I understood from the way my family was behaving was that there was this other war raging on that people in my family were part of and had been changed by, and the world wasn't paying attention. You don't hear it reported in the newspapers. You don't see it on the news. It is something that's changing your life, and yet the world at large doesn't seem to be paying attention. No. the the Yes. Uh, the, the Vietnam War gobbled up all of the Western uh, world's media attention. Yeah. And, and these, these wars didn't mean anything. And it actually made me think that they actually didn't work or they, didn't, they hadn't happened. I thought it right. was a lie. If I it thought, wasn't on the news. If it, it wasn't on the news, it's I like mean, the Dad. the kids today, like no, pictures or it didn't that's happen. Right. <laughs> if it's not there, you know. So, uh, so I thought maybe they're lying to me. Yeah. Maybe there's something else wrong with my uncle who... Um, is not in a catatonic state, but doesn't doesn't behave properly mm -hmm. socially when we're together. Um, so the, that was really difficult. And um, yeah, it was such a big part of growing up that I, I felt compelled to look into it. And I remember when I was a, a teenager, I, I was brave enough to ask my uncle, you know, and, and this is how it would go. Could you tell me something about ha what happened? And they would smile at me and not say anything. And then I'd said, is there anything you can share? And then they'd get a little upset and anxious. And if I asked the third time, which I'm prone to do, <laughs> to get the story, um, they would just get up and leave the room. Yeah. Yeah, I, I mean, I think that's probably a, a common story. I know my grandfather was World War II, and he was a, a fighter pilot. And uh, although... Uh, we know because there are photographs and things, but he never spoke of it and you did not ask him about it. I think that there are certain things that people try and suppress. It's with them all the time, but they try and suppress it and to verbalize it, I think probably, you know, takes them back to such a dark place. They just don't want, they don't want to go there. No. And I think that's exactly what was happening. Yeah. So to pay respect to those people while you're writing this book. What kind of research do you do? I mean, the personal connection is there for you, but you're writing a book that is essentially a book of historical fiction, even though it wasn't that long ago. It, it still falls under that category, I think. Uh, and you want to get the details right. Well, I, it's not that you want to get them. I felt a certain... Um, uh, I, I, I had to get them right. Mm -hmm. uh, if I was going to do this and if I was going to explore these worlds, I, I owed it to anyone who was involved at that time, my family and others and veterans alike who I interviewed. Um, I needed to get it right. So I had to travel and I, mm -hmm. I traveled. I did two trips to, uh, to Africa. One was um, to Tanzania, to research the yeah. other part of the book. And then, of course, was the um, the time that I flew to Mozambique to not only be on Mount Gorongosa and that area 
uh, but also to bear witness to the scars. I mean, the, the, the country itself, itself still holds many scars of this war. And I'm not just talking about the physical scars mm-hmm. in terms of the architecture and, and what has happened, but the people. That's the most important thing. And so many people wanted to share their stories. And how do those stories help create the mosaic that becomes the book? Because I'm sure you go there and you are inundated by stories and they're all touching and, and you know, your, 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 your heart is opened to them. But you've got a book to write and you have to be, I suppose, ruthless in terms of, 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 of condensing it down. How do you make those decisions? Well, you have a good editor. Uh, <laughs> uh, I, it's hard. So much was left on the editing floor. I, um, but you need to keep that central focus. And so anything that seemed and, – and I'm not going to say superfluous. I'm, I'm not going to say any kind of – that wasn't necessary. It was just I needed to keep um, – my focus on these three central characters and anything that was terrific but was just going to bog down the story, I had to cut loose. Well, I think less is always more. Simple is always better. Uh, I used to have a thing above my desk from Rolling Stone magazine from the early 1980s, and it was Kurt Vonnegut's uh, 10 Lessons on How to Write. And the first one was Tell a Good Story, and the other nine were Keep It Simple. Keep it simple. Yeah. And it it is the lesson that people can't seem to to wrap their hands, uh, their their head around, but that's the the key, right? Yeah, and I think that, um, I I think that's, you know, you walk into a bookstore, you see these tomes of 700 pages. I mean, there's something to be said for it. Everyone likes a big, chunky book like that. But- there is something about writing a book that is clean and pure and direct um, where there's an integrity there that is kept because you haven't let yourself run off to places that you would so dearly like yeah. to go. Yeah. You know, the Dr. Seuss, oh, the places you'll go. <laughs> uh, you know, and, and you start off that way, but you quickly start pruning. Yeah. Yeah, if you ever find yourself writing the words, but I digress. But I digress. <laughs> stop. Yeah, stop. Yes. Stop and go for a coffee yeah. and rethink the rest of your day. Right. Um, so these books are, are as we say, it's, it, it, it's not a simple book because the, the emotion and the, the emotionality of the book is, is, is front and center, I think. But it is a book that is very direct in its thing. But it, you talk about going to Africa, going that sort of thing. Uh, tell me about balancing life, work, all that stuff. Because you're a teacher and you, I mean, you can, you have months off in the summer and that sort of thing. But, you know, writing is is a different kind of profession. So tell me about how you, you manage all this. Um I managed okay with the first book, and I think that was just going on sheer energy about the fact that I was going to be published and how exciting was that. And then when the book was nominated for a Giller Prize, I thought, whoa, this is taking me places that I never thought uh, um, I would be. Um, So that was really exciting. By the time the second book came around, it was difficult being the head of the English department, juggling these uh, high school classes, working on stuff even beyond just my teaching class, creative writing uh, classes for kids and doing a whole bunch of things. Um, And I was coming home with three small children myself uh, with 94 Othello essays that just (laughs) I wanted to kill myself, Uh, you know. 
and then also had these contractual obligations. Yeah, you've got deadlines. My, yeah. I got deadlines. Yeah. Yeah. And I just didn't know how I was going to do it right. the second book. And I actually did go down to the principal at the time that I was working with who was who happened to have been an old grade 10 English teacher of mine. Oh, wow. And he was – he understood. And I said, I, I need out. Like I just need out. And he said, please, please stay put. We'll, we'll see if we can make this work. And they did. What they did was um, they knew that I wanted to be involved with books. They knew I wanted to be involved with the book culture of the school. And But I could the, – the marking as an English teacher, as a young parent, as a writer yeah. was killing me. Yeah. And so they put me in the library. And I became the teacher librarian. And so I could do all of that teaching and I can still kind of promote a book culture, but I didn't have that marking. I could right. work with kids till five o'clock at night, but I didn't have that marking. You didn't do that thing that I've always heard people oh, do boy. is you stand at the top of the stairs and you throw the, all the essays down. And if it lands on the first stair, they get a 90 and then it goes down I or up from there. <laughs> I'm sure there are people who do this. I don't know anyone, but I could never do that. Yeah, yeah. No, it, well, it's inc uh, unconscionable yeah. to do that. So tell me about – we've got a couple of minutes left. I'm always interested to hear from writers. We've talked about that the, the work-life balance – situation. But where do you write? What, what, what's your physical situation when you're writing? Do you write at the same place all the time? Do you write from certain hours? I interviewed Elmore Leonard once and he said, I start at 6.30 at noon. If I'm in the middle of a sentence, that's when I stop and I go have my sandwich and I come back very regimented. What's your process? I'm not regimented at all. Yeah. I have three small children. <laughs> I can't be because they rule the roost, right? Yeah, um, yeah. Well, I had three small children. The boys are now 20, 18, and 16. Wow, wow. Yeah, so it's a very different kind of, yeah. of uh, roost. Uh, but, um, you know, when I first started writing, I loved starting to write at 11 o'clock at night. Yeah, yeah. Um, phone's not ringing. Phone's not ringing. No one's vacuuming. There's, you know, you, there's just. All you hear is that incredible, you know, my, my children breathing yeah, as yeah. they're sleeping. The house is quiet. The problem with that is I have to work the next morning. But if the writing is good and if it's just flowing, before you know it, what feels like 10 minutes has turned into three o'clock in the morning. Yeah. Yeah. And I have to get up and start the day with three children and get going. Um, and that was difficult, but I loved that time. It was a bewitching. Yeah. Oh, I wrote my first few books between midnight and 6 a.m. Perfect. Because uh, uh, I'm a procrastinator as well, as a lot of writers are, I think. And, and you know, if my house is never cleaner than when I'm working on a book. That's what I always my say. My wife will say the same yeah. thing because I love <laughs> Yep, I'll cleaning. vacuum. I'll do any yes. of that stuff. Anything. But at those hours, you can't do that stuff. You're going to disturb somebody. So that really, for me, helped focus my mind. And it yeah, works. Yeah, and it does work. Now, am I one of those writers that writes every day? No, I don't. I have to live in the world that I want to write about. <laughs> so I love experiences. I'm gregarious. I, I really want to get out there. And only when I'm ready to write do I sit down. There is no time. There is no place. It could be at a cafe. It could be in my office, wherever. We have to leave it there. I love that story, though, because people tell me, and I'm sure that they, they ask you all the time, I want to be a writer. I don't know how to, how to make it happen. And I always say, just make it happen. 
Right. When when the spirit moves you, write. That's and right. and the only way you're going to get better at it is to write some more. And there's a movie called Patterson, and I've told this story before, but Patterson, uh, Adam Driver, he's a poet. He loses his book. This is the short uh, synopsis. And someone gives him a blank book with the words, every page of this is a possibility. And for me, that's the exciting part about writing. Anthony Desa has been my guest. Thank you so much for being here. What a Thank pleasure. You. The book is called Children of the Moon. It is available wherever you buy books, uh, Amazon.ca, bookstores. It is available everywhere. It's a fantastic read. Please check it out. Thanks to you for listening, and thanks to Andre on the board. We'll talk to you next week.